I'm glad there weren't so many groans uh, when Brian asked, are you ready for Christmas? I'm not. I've still got so much uh, to do, so many preparations to make. And, and um, we're introducing this Advent series today, A Weary World Rejoices. It's a time of great excitement. It's a time of great anticipation, time of great feasting, getting everybody together, a wonderful time. But it can also be a season of great exhaustion. Um, one, one, um, one of my favorite stories was about a family that all got together, an exhausted mom got everybody finally around the table and uh, turned to her, her five-year-old and said, uh, w- w- would you say the blessing, um, which is, you know, fraught with peril that kind of request. And uh, uh, she didn't go all, you know, Ricky Bobby, Talladega Nights, but um, she, 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 <laughs> but she said, I, I, I don't know how to pray. And her mom said, just pray the last prayer you heard me say. <laughs> and she said, she bowed her head, she said, oh Lord, why did I ever invite all these people over? Amen. <laughs> So we all, know, we all know the moms are paying the price and uh, hard work, weary world rejoices, uh, but it is a weary world, and we all experience something of that. Even this morning in our greeting, um, give somebody a fist bump, give somebody an elbow. We, we have this sort of built-in tension, don't we, in our relationships right now. Uh, many of us have had lost moments of celebration uh, over the last couple of years where there Hugs that we wanted to give that we couldn't. Um, graduations we couldn't attend. Weddings that had to be postponed. Uh, between July 1st and September 30th of this year, hitting an all-time high in the Google search engine was this question. Why am I tired all the time? There are a number of people who have noted this extraordinary internal weariness, which is being experienced by people all over the world. A lot of, you know, explanations for it, which are fairly obvious, um, some of which have entered into our vocabulary. There's phrases like Zoom fatigue, which didn't even exist in our language a couple of years ago. Why are we so tired if we spend time looking at people on a screen? National Geographic had an article about it this last week in which they noted the reason for Zoom fatigue is because when we communicate with people, we're used to seeing hands and shoulders and bodies in motion and people looking around and picking up cues in various ways. But when it's just um, this smaller shot and you're having to put so much energy into focusing on what is this person really saying, it actually requires so much more of us in those conversations which are limited in their visual scope to just a small space. The New York Times a month ago noted the disastrous emotional cost of uh, the miscelebrations which we've, we've all endured. But it's not the first time the world has been weary. Weariness, while we're experiencing it in new ways and new dimensions, is not a new phenomenon. And that is why in the middle of the 19th century a beautiful hymn was written, O Holy Night, which is sung by many churches all over the world. It's an old French carol. And um, it has this beautiful line in it. A thrill of hope. A weary world rejoices. And so the world has known its darkness. The world has known its weariness repeatedly over time. 
It's not new. And the weariness, it turns out, is not something which is merely physical or even psychological. There are a whole vast number of reasons for our weariness, and it goes right to the heart. And so this morning, I want us to turn our attention to some words of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 11 as we talk about, here's my message for you this morning, the rest that Jesus promises to the weary. The rest that Jesus promises to the weary. And I'd like for you to, if you can, if you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, or you can follow along on the screen in Matthew chapter 11, some of the most famous words that Jesus ever said. Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus says these words, Come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the gospel of the Lord. Won't you pray with me? Gracious Father, we thank you for your word inspired by your spirit in Matthew the Apostle, and we pray that that same spirit who inspired him to write would engrave these words of Jesus in our hearts and by them renew our minds so that we may know you, we might be close to you, and we might walk in your ways. And we thank you for this through Christ our Lord. Amen. So why are we weary? Well, there are a great many reasons why we're weary. Not just physically weary, not just worn down by everything that we experience and everything, the grief, the sadness, the sorrows, the losses of this global pandemic that everyone has walked through together. There are a number of sources of weariness, and these are noted throughout the scriptures. There is the weariness that comes simply from the apparent absurdity of life. That absurdity is noted by the wisest person who ever lived, King Solomon, in his book Ecclesiastes, where he talks about a person who simply goes after the accumulation of riches or looking for meaning in their life through the acquisition of power or who believes that perhaps somehow by acquiring any number of, addis- of additional lovers to their spouse that that will find fulfillment for them. So it's money, it's sex, it's power, and they go for it. And Solomon says, I've explored all of this. And it's, you know this phrase, vanity of vanities. The word is hebel. It's a mist. It's the kind of thing that says, as soon as you think you've worked so hard to grab, you, you, now I've got it. I've got, that, I've got that retirement plan just where, I, just where I want it and just where you think you can get your hands on it. It's like mist. You clench your hand upon it and it goes through your fingers. Solomon put it this way, you work your whole life and who is it left for? It's like the old myth of Sisyphus who keeps pushing the boulder all the way up the hill. He's consigned to do it repeatedly. That's his punishment. And just as he gets it to the top, it rolls all the way back down the hill. He has to start all over. And so Monday comes. And we start pushing the rock back up the hill. And we wonder why we're doing it. Isn't this all meaningless? Isn't this absurd? And so we wear ourselves out in the pursuit of some kind of meaningful labor 
that can fulfill our hearts, and yet our hearts still find a restlessness and an ache within them. There's pain. Pain can cause deep weariness. In this text, in Matthew chapter 11, one of the things going on here is Jesus has just spoken with a delegation of people who were sent from John the Baptist. John the Baptist appears earlier in Matthew's gospel as the forerunner of Jesus, and he's sent to the people of Israel to announce that God is coming. Emmanuel is going to appear before them, and I'm sent ahead of him, he says, to do the road work, to prepare the way before him. And then when Jesus appears, he says, behold, the lamb, there he is. I see him. I've, I've seen the spirit come upon him, and he, as he stood in the waters of the, of, of the Jordan, this is the one. For all of his trouble, all of his prophetic ministry, and you've got to remember who this man is. Jesus said of those born among women, in other words, the entire human race for all of history up until that moment, there was no one better than John the Baptist. He's the goat. When Jesus calls somebody the goat, and the goat says, behold the lamb, that's an important message. And this man, for all of his trouble, was imprisoned. He was imprisoned and he was awaiting execution in a Herodian dungeon. His head would soon be removed from his body. And in the midst of that psychological torture and physical deprivation, the lack of food, the darkness, the pain of that moment, he turns to his friends and he says, I want you to go to Jesus and I want you to ask him, listen to this question, are you the one or should we look for another? Now think about that. John has spent his entire life waiting for the Messiah and his entire ministry saying he's the one and now he gets right down to the end and he says, maybe not. Are you the one? And Jesus, Jesus, because he's a merciful and tender savior, does not deal with doubt and weakness and pain and discouragement and the weariness of the soul that is in John the Baptist. He doesn't deal with that in some kind of shaming way. Shame on you. I thought you were the goat, John. I thought you, you knew these things. You're my cousin. Surely you know. What are you doing asking these questions right at the finish line, John? What's up with all that unbelief? Jesus says, no, you go back to John. Reassure him. Tell him. The sick are healed, the dead are raised, the lepers are cleansed, sins are forgiven. Go and reassure him. Jesus deals with doubt and weakness and pain with tenderness. He doesn't condemn John, he assures John. Maybe this morning you've got questions like John. Maybe you've been facing tremendous pain, physical deprivation walking through cancer, going through chemo, and you're wondering, where is God in this suffering? Jesus doesn't condemn those questions. Jesus doesn't look at you with the questions that you carry in your heart and go, why do you have those kinds of questions? Those are very human questions. That's when our heart is worn out and our bodies are, are worn down by the, the burdens that we're carrying. Jesus steps into that. Of course, we have to be honest here and note that sin is something that wears people out. A sin will wear you out. You can pursue it. You can recognize that the scriptures say that sin is a pleasure for a short season, and it is, but laced with poison that eventually tears apart your interior life and shreds your health and destroys your finances and wrecks your relationships. In Psalm 32, David sang a song about this, and David knew a couple of things about sin. 
And David said, when I kept silent about my sin, Psalm 32, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away and my heart grew heavy within me. When I was silent about it. You see, the the fact of the matter is, you and I have to simply get real about our sin. One of the most precious things that can happen in any worship service is when people gathered together own who we really are, that we have blown it, we've messed up. You know, when you confess your sins, how does Jesus meet us when we confess our sins? He doesn't stand there like this going, I I can't believe you did that. I just can't believe that. When we confess our sins, we're not confessing our sins so that he knows about it. It's not as though when, when I confess my sins, Jesus turns to the Father and says, did you know that? I had no idea. I had no idea it was that bad. That's not the case at all. Why do we confess our sins? It's so that we know it, number one. And number two, so that we can hear his word of promise say to you and to me, your sins, though they are many, are forgiven. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the gospel that all of us need to hear. We preach the gospel to each other. But the reason we preach the gospel to each other, the good news, is because we actually acknowledge the truth, the bad news, that we really are a mess. Can I tell everybody who's visiting with us today, if you're looking for a church that's perfect, keep looking. But if you're looking for a church that knows we're full of sinners and has an amazingly perfect Savior, welcome home. This is a place for you. But sin, sin, sin will wreck you, man. We hear the wages of sin is death, and we think, oh, yeah, that's about eternity. And it certainly includes eternity, but it includes our temporal reality right now. Sin will kill you. It will wear you out. Let me tell you something else, though, that'll wear you out. Religion. You see, in this context, in Matthew chapter 11, when Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavily burdened, and I will give you rest, he's in a conversation, a contextual conversation with people who are putting burdens of religion on people. Commandment after commandment after commandment and shaming people who do not live up to that. Now, maybe you've had that in your, in your background, your religious background. I certainly did. I was with a group in my late teens, early 20s that majored on shame. They did not have, they, and here's, here's the really wicked thing. They thought shaming was the gospel. Like that was the good news. I remember in particular a sermon that was preached. I was, in this, I was in this service and this person was preaching away. And they were preaching on Saul's, King Saul in Israel, King Saul's partial obedience. That God had given him some, some things to do and he had done half of them. And then the prophet Samuel shows up and says, why have you only done half of what God has said? And he goes, well, you know, I was giving it my best shot. You know, I did all this, and Samuel goes, well, that's just not good enough. You know, that's actually rebellion. It's rebellion against God. And, and so this preacher got really wound up and said, I want you to know that 
50% obedience is 100% rebellion. And if you are calling yourself a Christian and you are living in 50% commitment, you are a rebel against God and you need to get 100% committed and get down here and fall on your face and get, get radical for Jesus. <laughs> That's a great message to a bunch of 17-year-olds who, who are zealots. And did you hear all the comfort and the gospel peace in that message? Did you hear all that? There's not an ounce of it. If I'd have had any sense at all, and I didn't, but if I'd had any sense at all, I'd have said 50% obedience is 100% rebellion. So is 99.9% obedience. 99.9% obedience is also rebellion. Here's what religion does. Religion stacks up command after command after command and says, you be perfect. And if you're not perfect, shame on you. But Paul, you see, you see here's, here's the deal. We, we are scorekeepers. We're statisticians. We're religious statisticians. And we kind of think the way that the commandments work, the Ten Commandments work is, they're like a, a, a window with several different panes in it, and there's like ten panes, and so here's, you know, I'm the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me, don't make any images, don't take my name in vain, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and don't bear false witness, and, and honor your father and your mother, and so on, all through the whole set of the Ten Commandments. And we think, well, I threw a baseball through three and through five, but the others are intact. So I'm Okay. But the law in the Bible is not presented as separate panes. It's one giant window. And if you throw, if you break one, you've broken what? All of them. All of them. If you've broken one, you've broken all. And the people Jesus is talking to did not have Ten Commandments. They had, get this, 613 of them. 600, that's what the rabbi said. 613 commandments which you had to perfectly obey and I'm going to give you a rabbinic quote from the time if Torah can be perfectly obeyed by all for just one day then Messiah will come can you imagine that whether or not the Messiah is going to come hinges on whether or not all of you perfectly obey God if we could just get all of you to just perfectly obey God, just for one day. In other words, we know you don't. So shame on you. And all the people, all the people who couldn't do it, they referred to as sinners. You're sinners, we're not. And you hear them talk in the Gospels about, I'm thankful, Lord, that I'm not a sinner like them. I was in a service one time, and another preacher got carried away. I was one of the pastors, and we were sitting. It was one of those services where all the pastors are up on the platform sitting behind the speaker. Very dangerous territory. And really, you need chicken wire for those kinds of gatherings. But uh, <laughs> he, got, he got one of those rhetorically carried away moments, and he said, hands up anybody who hasn't sinned in the last week. And this guy sitting next to me raised his hand. And he turned to me, he goes, I, I haven't had time, I've been so busy. <laughs> there isn't anyone in here, there isn't anyone in here, including me, who isn't a sinner. 
in need of a Savior. And if you've broken one commandment, you've broken how many? All of them. And that means the full weight, the full penalty of all of that law-breaking would fall on me. And so then if you're looking at somebody who does perfectly obey the law like Jesus did, you might, you might think, you'd be tempted to think that because he's perfect, he would look at you and me with contempt. But he doesn't. He does not meet us in our weariness with a denunciation. He meets us in our weariness with an invitation. Weary ones, weary ones, burdened by your sin, burdened by religion. Come to me, all of you who are, what? Weary. And I will give you rest. And there is no elbow in Jesus' greeting. There is no fist bump. It's a wildly, astonishingly merciful, full embrace that gathers you close to his heart. And he says, come to me. Come to me. What is the source of our rest? The source of our rest is Jesus himself. Come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Jesus doesn't say come to church. Now, I'm glad you've come to a church this morning. You should come to church, but there are people who spend their whole life coming to church but never come to him. I'm glad you're here this morning. You've come to church. Jesus didn't say come to church. He said what? Come to me. Come to me. I'm glad you've made the journey this far. Don't leave here this morning having come this far without coming to him. He's here. His hands are outstretched to every weary person. Up here in the balcony, back there in this section, down here, every single weary soul, Jesus' arms are open wide saying, come to me. And then he has a gift for you. You heard Brian stand up and say, we're glad you're here today. We have a gift for you. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. Because rest, you see, is not an attainment we achieve. Rest that Jesus is talking about is a gift we receive. You see, what's the first day of the week? Sunday, not Monday. Not Monday. Sunday. Oh, I know, we still call this the weekend, but it's not. This is the beginning of the week. How did that happen? It wasn't always that way. What happened was the early saints, the early Christians began to say the first day of the week on which God created all things and in which Jesus was raised from the dead, we gather to worship because this is our rest. This is our Sabbath. Our week begins in rest. We tend to think of rest is something which is given to us as a reward for all the chores we do all week. We do that with our kids. Clean your room. I said clean your room. Clean your room. Don't do this. Do that. Wash my car. Vacuum it out. Get every last speck of sand from the beach, I'm telling you. And then we go, here's, here's, here's your reward. Now you can go to the movies. 
things. And we tend to do that in all of our relationships, including our relationship with God. And so we think, okay, I'm going to get through the whole week, and then I'm going to get to church, and I'm going to find some rest. But this is not the end of the week. This is the beginning of the week because your life in God does not begin with your work on Monday. It begins with rest, with Sabbath, with the presence of Jesus. And it is out of rest in Christ that the Christian enters Monday and work. We are a people who are given a gift. It is grace which is bestowed upon us. And it's an invitation then to learn of Jesus. Come to me, all of you who are heavy laden, who are weary, and I will give you rest. You will find rest for your souls when you, listen to these words of Jesus, take my yoke, my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find, you will discover rest for your soul. When will you find rest for your soul? When the heart of Jesus, which is gentle and lowly, becomes your heart. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Pastor Dane Ortland, it's one of the best, it's the best book I read in 2020, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. I commend it to you. He opens up the fact that this is the one place in the New Testament where Jesus talks about his own heart, what he's like on the inside. What is Jesus like? What's the heart of Jesus like? And when Jesus, in the one place, he says, if you want to know what makes me tick, if you want to know what's down here inside of my heart, I am gentle, meek, and lowly. And we've talked about meekness before. I remind you, when we hear the word meekness, we think weakness. And it's unfortunate because both words sound alike, but they're nothing alike. Meekness is not weakness. Now, normally, we wouldn't hand out meek as a compliment. You would never see a right tackle starting for the Miami Dolphins, and you would go, that guy is so meek. In fact, you might not look for that in a right tackle. But this word meekness in the New Testament is a very important word. It was used of powerful horses that had been trained, all of their power and might harnessed so that now it could be used in the service of the king. That's the word that's used. They would say that horse has been meeked. Its strength, its power, rather than being sent out all over the place in some kind of undisciplined way, has been brought into harness. It's been brought to bear on a specific purpose. And then Jesus says, lowly, humble, harnessed and humble, harnessed power and humility that looks upon the will of God and says, that's what I want more than anything else. I am meek and lowly of heart, and I want your heart, Jesus says, to take on my heart. You see, as long as our hearts remain filled with selfish ambition, as long as our hearts remain filled with greed, and lust which we can never fully satisfy, as long as those things are keep pulling us, those are the magnets of our heart. St. Augustine said, my, my weight is my, my, my love is my weight. What he meant by that is love is, whatever I love is a gravitational force that pulls me towards it. If our loves are disordered, if we have love even for legitimate ends and people, but it's disordered, we love our spouse more than we love Jesus. I married a gal who, thank God, loves Jesus more than she loves me. 
That's the only reason we've been able to stay married for 41 years. She loves him more than she loves me. If you love in a disordered way, if that gravitational pull is taking you a particular direction away from Jesus, that's the source of the weariness. Jesus says, if you're weary, do what? Come to the distance you see between me and Jesus. That's the source of my weariness. That space has to be closed. And I got good news for you this morning. Especially if you're in the back row of the balcony. It is not up to you to close the distance. He has come to us. The whole message of Advent is this. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Isaiah prayed, O Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And the angels on a hillside said, he did. And here he is. And John the Baptist said about God come down, the one who's come to us, there he is. Behold the Lamb. Jesus Christ died on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven and so that our hearts could be knit to his so that his heart could be like ours. And can I tell you something about Jesus that's astonishing? The scriptures say the Lord never gets tired. He is not weary of us. There's probably people sitting near you tonight or today you're weary of. You may be weary of them. You may be weary of yourself. But God does not grow weary of us. And he says to everyone in this room today, come to me. Come to me. The one who comes to you says to you, come to me. I'll embrace you. And finally, your heart, so tired, will find rest. Let's pray. Lord, we turn our hearts to you, and we, in obedience to what you have said, come to you, the one who has come to us. Oh, Emmanuel, God with us, would you take our weary, tired, shattered souls and help us to put our trust in you, oh Jesus, Savior of the world, and finally bring us to places of rest. Let the weary world rejoice. The Savior has come. And all God's people said...